0: In a rare recording, this was the voice of Benjamin Harrison. His speech begins, As President of the United States, I was present at the first Pan-American Congress in Washington, D.C. As President of the United States, I'm President State of the South pan American Congress in Washington, D.C. Today, Dr. Bob Tess, our two countries, thousands, continue to live side by side in peace and prosperity. Benjamin Harrison. Well, good morning, good evening, or good afternoon, wherever you are, whatever you do. A lot of things happening in the world today. Most of them are far beyond our control, you might say. So perhaps it's time we took a pause and thought about life and thought about the laws of gravity, the president, the constitution, the take care clause, and the most convoluted, salacious, titillating, scandalous, and entertaining story you will hear today i will try that dial. Just trying to hear me out for a while. Benjamin Harrison barely moves the needle on the list of famous presidents. What most people know about him is two things. One, his grandfather was a president. And second, he caused the greatest joke on Archer of all time. But even today, his actions vis-a-vis the Constitution continue to resonate. What else is new? Am I right? Here's how you get a hold of me. The text machine is area code 209565DAVE. Text and voicemails. That's five six five three two eight three. The email is dave at com, And, of course, you can get me on the web at com, podcast99.org, or on Facebook and Twitter. Ego very capulous, and all of very... I drink coffee that others might doubt. So Benjamin Harrison is... Well... Like I said, there's two things most people know about him. Number one, he was the grandson of uh, a previous president. And that's pretty much anybody knows about him. He did cause one of the greatest jokes on Archer of all time. Uh, Grover Cleveland called. He left two non-consecutive messages. William William Harrison or Benjamin Harrison, sorry, not William Harrison. That's his grandfather. Uh, Benjamin Harrison is the man who both beat Grover Cleveland and then four years later turned around and lost to Grover Cleveland. So he's uh, he's that guy in the middle, and he is, well, not known for doing much else. But in looking at his presidency and in looking at what he accomplished and what he did, it, it, it's kind of disappointing in a lot of ways. It really is. Um, he was elected with full control of both houses of Congress. He was um Privileged, I guess, to appoint four Supreme Court justices, he was. He's well known as a man of great integrity and great honesty. He, most historians hold him in very high regard as a person, even though he didn't really seem to accomplish much as a president. As always happens, the midterms would go against him, and he would lose com- complete control of Congress. He lost. He lost the House, um, and from that point forward, it was just a matter of. Waiting out his time, he did run for reelection, but by then you'd had the panic of 1890. You've had some economic issues, and Grover Cleveland was able to stage his comeback and return to the White House. So, what is it we we look to for uh, for Mister. Harrison? What did he actually accomplish? Well, he's he's in, despite the joke and his grandfather, there are a couple of things that he is actually known for as a president. The first was that he himself, along with uh, some, with the help of a senator, were really the, the power behind the Sherman Antitrust Act. Senator Sherman and President Harrison pretty much wrote that law, the Sherman Antitrust Act, which was designed to bust the trusts. Now, look, we don't have a lot of time to go into that sort of things, but you need to know that the trusts were universally, except for the people that owned them, seen as bad for America. And... It was just a it was just a simple matter of the rich becoming richer. And the the belief was that the trusts owned Congress and owned the Senate as portrayed there in the cartoons. Uh, Standard oil was a trust. You had copper trust. You had all kinds of trusts. And what these were were these were businesses where they essentially even competitors would join together so that they could keep all the other businesses out. Nobody could get into the business. They they split all the profits And they got very wealthy. And, of course, they bought a lot of legislatures. Well, the Sherman Antitrust Act was designed to make monopolies and trusts illegal. In fact, that's what it says. These are now illegal in the United States. And you would have thought that had it worked, uh, Harrison would have gone down as a great hero. The problem is, of course, it didn't work. Uh, The reasons it didn't work were, number one, the, the Congress never really put any teeth into the law because again, they were owned by the trusts. It was a popular thing. It was, it was one of those things they did because people loved it, but they didn't actually do anything. Uh, there's an old saying in the civil service, the, the less you intend to do about something, the more you have to talk about it. Well, the Sherman Antitrust Act is a great example of that. Secondly, as I said, uh, Harrison appointed four Supreme Court justices, all of whom took pot shots at the Sherman Antitrust Act and basically eviscerated it over the next few years. And so his own Supreme Court justice appointments didn't didn't really help him. The other thing he was known for was he was a very ardent and very passionate supporter of the 15th Amendment and the rights of African-American men to vote. He was furious that the former Confederate states and indeed some Union states were still continuing to block the black men, the black men from voting. And he passionately spoke about this. He argued about it. He tried to get Congress to do anything about it. You've got, it says right there in the 15th Amendment, this is enforceable by law by Congress. He couldn't get them to do anything. He never could overcome the inertia. He never could overcome the biases of post-Civil War America. And despite the fact that Harrison himself had served during the war, he just couldn't get anybody to do anything. No matter how passionately he spoke about it, no matter how much he believed that the war had been to secure the freedoms of 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 citizenship for all americans he just couldn't get anybody to go along with him on that and so it wasn't until many many years later that those things began to change around but he should be noted for having really been a supporter of that and being one of the early people to really to really push for that and to really really get it to try to to happen Harrison, if those were the only two things he'd ever done, well, we probably wouldn't be talking about him today. But along the way, he did something that seemed at the time kind of uh, kind of minor and kind of off the cuff. There was a lot of question about whether or not he could do it. There was There were people who said, you can't do that. that.'s a, there, there's no law that says you can do that. Does this sound familiar? If it's the Madisonian versus the Jeffersonian model or Hamiltonian versus Jeffersonian, Hamilton said, well, if you if doesn't say you can't, then you can. And Jefferson was initially believed that if it doesn't say you can, you can't in the Constitution. Well, there's nothing that says you can't do it or you can do this thing that he would end up doing. And so a lot of people were upset about what he had done. What what did he do? Well. Article three, section, article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution it contains what's called the Take Care Clause. He, the President, shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Now, this is one of those phrases that everybody reads, but nobody can actually agree exactly what it means. George Washington took this phrase to mean that he was responsible for making sure that federal laws were executed. Whatever that might mean. Um, in the, during the ratification debates in North Carolina, this would actually become kind of an issue in North Carolina, and you would have one of the delegates there that would actually proclaim this phrase right here, this, this clause in Article 3, Section 3, to be the most important part of the Constitution, going so far as to say that if this actually happens, if the president actually does this and has this power, it'll be the best government in the history of mankind, if the president actually does that. Of course, again, Nobody really knows, knew or knows now exactly what this means. It has been interpreted through time to mean, again, uh, Jeffersonian, if it doesn't say he can do it, he can't. And since the 1890s, it's been more interpreted to be, if it doesn't say he can't do it, well, he has a responsibility to take care of things, and so he can. And this has entered virtually every argument we've had about presidential policies, Since the 1890s, right down to today, I read an article this week about the Take Care Clause, the law being faithfully executed, and a certain policy of Donald Trump that is raising a lot of controversy right now, uh, the border wall. In order to get to what Benjamin Harrison did, we have to go back to the 1850s. Our story actually starts with these two guys. On the left is David Terry. Now, those of you who are not from California may not have any familiarity with David Terry, and those of you who are from California may not may not even know this guy, but you should. David Terry is actually the man who put pen to paper and wrote the California State Constitution. He's the man who wrote it. He is also he's a very successful lawyer. He is a very big guy. He's very tall, he's very robust. And he is a hot head. People have gotten in arguments and fights with him on and off for a long time. In fact, somehow or another, probably because of his connections, he ends up being elected as the chief justice of the Supreme Court of California. So he ends up on the state court of California. During his time as as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in the 1850s, he actually wears a robe that has special pockets in it where he can hide his pistols and his knives, so that if he gets into a brouhaha, he's armed, even while sitting as Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court. The man on the right is Senator Broderick. Senator Broderick was a senator from the state of California, and he was an adamant abolitionist. Terry, on the other hand, is more, I don't put him in the category of most of your southern hotheads, but he is certainly pro-slavery, and he thinks that California should be a slave state, or should have been admitted as a slave state, even though it wasn't. As Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, people listen to what he has to say, and so he continues to ramble on about slavery being a good thing, while Senator Broderick says, no, it's a bad thing, and we're not a slave state. We're not going to be a slave state. We're going to join the union. We're, you know, we're going to stay with the union. We're not going to secede. We're not, and these two men get an argument over slavery. The chief justice of the California Supreme Court, the man who wrote the state constitution and the states, one of the two state senators, get involved in a physical argument over slavery. And Terry, who is, again, a hothead, challenges Broderick to a duel. And because... Honor was seen much differently, much like Alexander Hamilton yesterday. Neither one of these idiots were surprisingly intelligent enough to go, well, that's just stupid. Why are we doing this? And they go out outside the city limits of San Francisco, and they have a duel. The Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, David Terry, shoots and kills Senator Broderick. There's some salacious details about the about the duel itself. They had hair-trigger pistols. uh, Broderick's pistol misfired or fired into the ground before he could get aim, and and Terry shot him anyway. So, anyway, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the state of California has to leave the state because now he's been involved in an illegal duel in which the state's senator to to Washington, D.C. was killed. He is replaced by this man, Justice Stephen Fields, who becomes the Chief Justice of the State of California. That's important. Why you say? Stay with me. Because we're gonna get we're going you're gonna get some strange things. Thirty years later, this man is now Senator for the state of California. His name is Senator William Sharon. And he is a very, very wealthy man. He is so wealthy, in fact, that it's almost embarrassing. He has made millions of dollars in the silver trade and, more importantly, in the business of loaning money to silver miners and then foreclosing on silver miners in the Comstode lock. He, because he becomes so, you know, he's, he's been involved in, in politics for a long time. He's a Republican. He, he and he's very rich. Oh, and by the way. Where do you think he got most of his money? Most of his money came from the death of his business partner. This guy on the right, for those of you who are not uh, watching the video, the guy on the right, many of you may know quite well. His name is Ralston. Yep, that's right. That Ralston, the guy who was so modest that they named a town in Central California after him, Modesto. He didn't have a goat, but he did have a lot of money. And when his death occurred, probably not at the hands of Senator Sharon, but Senator Sharon didn't really do anything to help him. Uh, because they were business partners, Sharon basically took everything that, uh, that uh, Ralston, almost called him Modesto, had and used it to strengthen himself and eventually become a United States senator later that year. He goes on to become a moderate senator. Oddly enough, while he's in the Senate, he's put in charge of the Mining Committee because he knows a lot about how to fund mining. Alright? So there's your first... There's one of your main characters. Your next character is this woman. Her name is Sarah Althea Hill. Now Sarah Althea Hill, as you can see, is a very beautiful woman. She is flat-out gorgeous. And she's... Uh, She's a San Francisco socialite, so she knows all these people. She's moved in these in these circles for years. Most of you, especially you guys, are aware of the universal hot crazy matrix. This is the the axis on which you have the how crazy is a woman versus how hot she is, and when you get to the when you get to the uh, the point where you know, well. I'm not trying to be misogynist here, but, you know, there's some women who are hot but not crazy. They don't exist. Uh, Hot but moderately crazy. That's your wife's zone. Then you got the fun zone. You got the date zone. You have the no-go zone. And you have the absolute danger zone. Well, Sarah Althea Hill falls into that danger zone. She is crazy. She is violent. It is not unheard of for her to pull knives on people and start hacking away. If they have made her mad, she is. She's in the danger zone, danger zone. She really is. I mean, she is a freaking nut along the way, though, she meets up with old Senator Sharon there after his wife died and his kids are grown and she starts hanging around with him in Nevada where he is has a lot of business interests, even while he's a senator, he, uh, he, he runs businesses in the Comstead Lock, and eventually after he is a senator, he becomes the Bank of California's representative in Nevada, and that's where he meets the insanely crazy, danger-hot Sarah Althea Hill. And they begin, by all accounts, to have a torrid affair. Okay, that's fine. And in 1880... She uh, he leaves her or she leaves him or something happens. But she starts to claim that she is married to him and she produces what appears to be a marriage certificate saying that they were married down in the old state of Alabama, of all places. And therefore, she wants a divorce from him and a lot of his money. Well, of course, this goes to court. She hires as her attorney. Guess who? That's right. Right. David S. Terry is hired as her attorney. He's back in the state now. People still think he's a hothead, but he hires her or she hires him as her attorney in the divorce proceedings that are based on this questionable marriage certificate. And so as the case goes forward, the case goes against her. They lose. They lose. Uh, She loses the case, but she starts appealing and they start arguing and there's more cases and more lawsuits and all of that. And in the middle of all this, Senator Sharon just dies. (laughs) He just he's old anyway. So he kicks off. Well, the trials are still going on. The appeals are still going on. Everything's still happening here and she's still continuing to lose. And they're appealing it up to the to the circuit court of the United States federal courts And in the meantime, Sarah Althea Hill marries Terry, her lawyer, who's representing her in this divorce case. I I know what you're saying. Dave, what does this have to do with the take care clause? Stay with me. Stay with me. All right. So they appeal this case up to the ninth, what will eventually become the Ninth Circuit Court. In those days, Supreme Court justices rode... The the circuits, they went out and and did those things. And so this case is appealed to the circuit court. And guess who the sitting judge is for the circuit court that hears the appeal in the divorce case of Miss Hill against the estate now of, of Senator Sharon. That's right. Justice Stephen Fields, who replaced Terry as the California chief justice after Terry shot Senator Broderick and had to leave the state. So there's some bad blood there already between these two. In the meantime, they get ready to hear this this case before the Ninth Circuit Court, and one of the one of the federal marshals hanging out in the court is a guy by the name of David Nagel. David Nagel is a lawman. He's he's been a lawman for a long time. In fact, he was in Tombstone, Arizona in 18 in the 1880s, the late 1880s, circa 1888. Working as a lawman in that era. We don't have time to go into all of that, and so there you go. Justice Stephen Fields, sitting as the Ninth Circuit Court's judge, hears the appeal of the case of Hill versus Sharon, trying to prove that her divorce and her marriage was real, so that her divorce is real, so that she can have a whole lot of his silver money. He rules, nope. There's no evidence that this was actually real. This certainly appears to be fake, and we've got a problem. And so, no, I rule against you. And immediately, Sarah Hill goes, well, by now Sarah Terry, goes absolutely freaking bitch cakes in the, in the courtroom. She pulls a knife. She's jumping towards the judge. He's like, oh, what the heck? And, of course... They get her restrained and get her dropped off when, in fact, um, Terry decides that he's had enough of all this. And so he goes after the judge. Remember those pockets that he used to have in his robes? Well, he's not wearing robes now, but he's going to go after the judge, too. He's actually tackled by David Nagel. Nagel tackles him in the courtroom, disarms him, and it is Nagel who hauls the pair off to jail. Terry gets sent to six months in prison for uh, for disrupting the court for contempt of court, uh, Miss Hill, Miss Terry, now gets uh, she gets a month and off they go, and they're sent away for time being. In the meantime, Judge Fields goes back. Justice Fields goes back to Washington D.C. and he starts doing his his uh, Supreme Court stuff. By the way, he was appointed by President Nick uh, President Lincoln, and he will actually end up being one of the longest serving justices in the history of the Supreme Court. We don't have time to go into all this rulings and stuff. But time goes long, and, and eventually, Judge Fields has to go back out to California to hear more circuit cases, because that's his circuit, and he's going to go out there and do that. And so he opts on the train and heads towards San Francisco. And on the fateful day, August fourteenth, eighteen 1889, the train pulls into Lathrop, California, the station in Lathrop, California. Now, unbeknownst to Judge Terry, I'm sorry, unbeknownst to Judge Field, Terry and his wife have served their sentence, and for some reason, they're on this same train. They are on the train, and they have just found out, as it's pulling into Lathrop, California, they have found out that Judge Steve Fields is on this train. And so, they walk up towards him, and they, in, the, in the train, now, they walk towards him, and Terry, who is, again kind of a hothead. He's already killed at least one man in a duel. He's, you know, he's he's married to a woman who is in the danger zone and probably uh, pretty passionate about the whole thing. He walks up and slaps Judge Fields, essentially, by all accounts, challenging him to a duel. (laughs) Judge Fields, of course, is taken aback by this and believes that he's been assaulted. And it's here that we get to our point. Benjamin Harrison because this story is so salacious again it's titillating it's 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 scandalous it's in all the newspapers everybody knows about this and he's pretty good with good friends with judge fields has decided that before I send judge fields back out to california on his circuit ride this nut job is going to be out of prison we need to do something. And so he tells his attorney general to assign a bodyguard to the judge. The attorney general looks around and he picks out this guy, David Nagel, and says, Nagel, you are a federal marshal. You are now a bodyguard for Judge Fields. You will ride with him on the train and you will keep him safe. And when the train arrives in Lathrop, California, and Terry walks up and smacks Judge Fields' Challenging him to a duel, Nagel says, Stop! Don't do that! Stop! He yells. Terry, who is, of course, a hothead, continues towards towards Judge Fields and David Nagel shoots Terry in the heart and kills him instantaneously on the train in Lathrop, California on August 14th of 1889. Well, Sheriff Thomas Cunningham... San Joaquin County, knows that he's got a dead citizen, a citizen who is, you know, look, he's, he's a hothead, he's, he's a bully, he's, he's all this, but he's also a, for, a pretty upstanding, a pretty important citizen of Stockton, California. And the sheriff probably has some ties to Terry from a patronage standpoint, and so he immediately arrests Nagel. And Justice Fields, he charges them both with murder, and he decides that he is going to charge them with the full ride of murder, and he's going to make sure that they get punished. I'm not kidding, folks. Cooler heads will prevail, and the U.S. Attorney General and the U.S. Attorney in San Francisco will explain to the the sheriff that you're holding a Supreme Court judge who did not pull the trigger, and by all accounts... Did nothing. You need to let him go. And so he lets him go. Then the, uh, the attorney, U.S. attorney, hands Justice, uh, Sheriff Cunningham a, a writ of habeas corpus, ordering him to release Mr. Nagel, who was performing the federal duties that he had been assigned. Cunningham is not happy about this. He sues in federal court, not before Judge Fields, who has to recuse himself from the entire case. This thing goes all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And while it's on its way to the United States Supreme Court, Harrison delivers his State of the Union address in which he says, I recommend that more definite provisions be made by law, not only for the protection of federal officers, but for a full trial of such cases in the United States courts. That's his State of the Union address a few months later in 1890. The Supreme Court, minus Justice Fields, who has to recuse himself, considers all of this. And they decide they go all the way back to Article 3. Section three of the United States Constitution, he shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And they decide that that means that the president of the United States has a responsibility, a responsibility under the take care clause. They specifically cite this clause three times in their their in re. It's not quite a ruling because they don't actually hear a case. But they decide that the president acted correctly three times. They quote this, saying that the president, well, we cannot doubt the power of the president to take measures for the protection of a judge of one of the courts of the United States. That's from the Supreme Court ruling, Nagel versus Cunningham, 418-1990. They have decided that the take care clause means that Benjamin Harrison, using his power as president of the United States, has decided to protect officers of the United States under the United States, and in doing so has fulfilled his constitutional duties under Article 3, Section 2 of the United States Constitution. And for that reason, even to this day, the Supreme Court looks at the take care clause as allowing the president to do things that are perhaps uh, annoying to us and perhaps surprising to us, But under the take care clause, it allows the president to do things that aren't necessarily covered specifically under the laws. Pretty bizarre, huh? I wish I could tell you the whole story. We've just scratched the surface of this whole Terry Broderick Sharon Hill Fields thing. This this story, you think the O.J. Simpson trial or something like that or Crazy Wives of New York or whatever shows are crazy? Go look up this story. It is absolutely incredible. The the just the twists and turns that this takes. And it all ends up with Benjamin Harrison establishing what is essentially the way that the Take Care Clause is imposed upon the United States today. Pretty amazing stuff, if you think about it. And just a little bit of the history behind all of that. I got to get going. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. Plausibly live. I'm Dave Bowman. This is my show. The Dave Bowman Show right here on the podcast. 99 Internet Radio Network. This has been the President and the Constitution. Episode three. Take care. If you like it, please download it. Share it. Let people know that uh, you enjoyed it. They'd love to hear it, too. All right. Have a great weekend, everybody, and we will see you on Monday. Dave Bowman Show is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. For more information or to complain about how the show offended you, the text or voicemail number is 209-565-DAVE. For more information about the show, log on to the Hey, I'm going to go do something productive. I'm going to go watch television.